Welcome back to another episode of Civic Tech Chat. If you have a moment, I do have a favor to ask of you. If you head on over to our website, civictech.chat, there you'll find a Give Feedback link. When you click on it, it takes you to a form that lets you give your thoughts, your feedback on ways that we can improve the program. So again, if you have that moment, please head on over there and tell us what you think. For this episode, we are joined by Genevieve Godet, a senior designer over at Nava, and also a person who helped put together a design shop within the New York City government. We're going to be talking a bit about this idea of humane technology, what it means, and we're going to dig into the topic as far as like what kinds of ethics it touches, and a whole lot more. I think you'll enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. So let's go ahead and get started. Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us on Civic Tech Chat. Uh, could you take some time to introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Genevieve Goday. I'm a designer uh, building humane technology. My work focuses on strengthening the safety net in the U.S. and in particular on uh, what we call eligibility technology. So that those are the, the systems and processes that people go through to find out if they qualify for help with things like uh, health coverage or help buying food through a SNAP or even assistance paying utility bills, things like that. One of the things that we talk about often on this program at the beginning of every episode is this concept of personal why, that idea of what drives you to get out of bed each morning and, and do awesome stuff like that. So what, what would that why be for you? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, whenever I, I reflect on, you know, why do I do this work and why I'm here, there's a, a really specific story that uh, comes to mind for me. Uh, so back in 2007, I was a college student at Tulane University in New Orleans, and uh, I was a volunteer EMT um, working in public health clinics and in ambulances. Uh, in public health clinics, I mostly did what's called intake which is uh, to ask people why they're there, you know, why do they need to see a doctor um, and get a little information from them so that the, the doctor or the nurse can be prepared to help them. Um, and at the time, the city was still recovering from Hurricane Katrina. And so often when I asked people, you know, why are you here today? Uh, two years after the hurricane, the story always started with the hurricane, you know, with the big disaster that had just like unseated you know, so many people's lives. Um, and two years later, folks were still trying to recover and were experiencing a lot of, a lot of health issues and other issues uh, coming out of that. Um, and I think for me that, that really embedded sort of in my, in the very beginning of my career, this idea that um, it doesn't really uh, matter who you are or your situation now, uh, devastating things can can just happen. And so it forced me super early on to start asking myself questions like, what do we owe each other? You know, when, when really um, devastating things happen and who or, or what institutions are positioned to, to help people in situations like that, um, especially, uh, you know, in, in a situation in New Orleans, there was a hurricane, almost everyone I knew was affected, but I think there are like what I think of as little hurricanes every day for people all over the country. Um, and, you know, if you have the sort of 
brain, space, and relative privilege to ask these questions. You know, are you obligated to do anything about it? Uh, and for me, the answer is yes. So um, that's why I, I work on what I do now. You've gone through kind of an interesting path yourself in kind of getting to where you are now. Uh, it's a background that includes research, community engagement, design, and uh, leadership roles, among others. Could you talk us through this path of that is driven by that personal why from where you were to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I want to I want to be clear up front that um, when I talk about how I, I got here, that my particular path has involved exercising the enormous amount of privilege that I'm lucky to have afforded to me. Uh, and I think it's important to call that out because often um, when we do like what I call more casually like do-gooder work, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a lot of barriers in front of um, a lot of things for people who can't necessarily afford to work for free or, or volunteer or things like that. Um, but uh, if we start like back in that public health clinic, I was a volunteer. EMT in New Orleans, um, working within a very broken public health system. Uh, and I ended up devoting my studies to that and getting super uh, frustrated with the state of design and technology in public health, which was, um, was certainly there. Uh, but I, I felt like, you know, there could be a better approach to the way we, we build things, the way folks uh, interact with um, public services and, and with that domain. Um, so coming out of, out of graduate school, finishing at Tulane, I moved to New York and started doing a lot of design internships, um, mostly in, uh, the, the social impact in public health space. I worked on design projects for organizations like Global Health Corps, um, the Aspen Institute, and eventually a few for the city of New York, uh, and around that time, um, a community in civic tech in New York was starting to form with the founding of Civic Hall. Um, and I was suddenly around a lot of people who were really interested in this problem and, um, you know, who were also sort of collectively realizing that government as an institution, you know, has access to, um, has access to the, the kind of scale that you need in order to be able to, um, you know, improve a lot of people's lives all at once or, or you know, change one thing and uh, really have an impact um, both like across a city or a state or whatever uh, level you're operating in. So for a few years, I just stuck around that community and sort of inserted myself into any <laughs> anything I could and, um, you know, was lucky that uh, eventually in 2015, I had the opportunity to co-found the New York City Service Design Studio in the office of uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, alongside two really incredible women, uh, Ariel Kennan and Chisin Rees. And um, when I was there as a deputy director, I helped to redesign how the city uh, helps their residents, 8 million people, um, figure out if they're eligible for any of these programs that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, finding health coverage, getting help paying for food, paying for housing, things like that. Um, and then from there, after that project launched, I had the opportunity to join the team at NAVA, a public benefit corporation, uh, whose mission is, is very similar, you know, sort of this thread of like, how do we help government 
serve those folks? Uh, you know, what are the, the levers and institutions that are um, best set up to help people who are experiencing uh, all kinds of struggle or, or poverty or anything like that? Uh, and so right now at NAVA, I'm focused on building up a team of technologists who are trying to make it easier for folks to access health coverage and food and energy assistance at the state level, um, specifically with the state of Vermont. That's uh, where all my focus is going right now. Now, I, I would imagine that co-founding a design studio at a city as large as New York must have been a unique experience. Uh, what, what was it like, for one, like trying to do that and then kind of also then like trying to carry that through the execution? execution? Uh, I mean, we were really lucky in that um, there was buy-in, you know, at the leadership level, way above me, uh, that the studio was going to happen. Um, so we didn't have to fight that fight necessarily. Um, but when we got there, I think at first the challenge was like, what are we going to work on? You know, how do we find projects that will uh, demonstrate the value of what we're doing? Um, you know, and that, that best use our skills as uh, service designers, product designers, um, and will set us up to really grow the studio, because uh, you can't just have designers, <laughs> unfortunately. And, you know, one of the first projects that we, we all worked on together was a project called Homestat, um, which let us apply service design to a really big ongoing body of work to get houseless New Yorkers into permanent homes. So this, um, the big question in that project was really, uh, how do we help New Yorkers who are living on the sidewalk or in the subway um, get through this, you know, really um, meticulous bureaucratic process that uh, you have to go through to get a permanent home? Um, we mapped out that process through a lot of field research and working with uh, program experts, policy experts, things like that. And we found that it took like hundreds and hundreds of steps and it could take years um, to really help someone who is in that situation. Um, and, you know, that was like the, that was really the way our team was able to demonstrate a lot of value and uh, get buy-in to do other things like the redesign of, the, of Access NYC, which is the site I mentioned that helps folks figure out um, what they qualify for and things like that. Um, so in some ways, you know, we had buy-in for this team, uh, but the challenges were like, how do we really focus our efforts so that we can um, actually help the programs we've been asked to help and, uh, you know, make the case for, for sticking around and growing that little practice. At the beginning of the path you described, you mentioned volunteering mm -hmm. uh, in a, like a medical capacity. And I, and I believe yeah. in the digging around I did that one of the titles <laughs> you had for that was crew chief, which for one, that like that yeah. just sounds like a cool title. <laughs> but uh, I would be curious, like that mu you must have had a, like a really unique experience there. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that and like what inspired you to step up and, and serve that way? Yeah, well, um, a crew chief, I'll tell you what a crew chief is. And then I can't if you want. So a crew chief, uh, when you call 911, um, you know, a few uh, medical professionals will show up. Uh, and in this case, a crew chief is the person who is responsible for um, the team. 
uh, and, and the medical decision. So getting you safely to a hospital. Um, and that wasn't what I started with. No one starts as that, but it's what I did eventually. Um, and the reason I found myself in that position, like holding a radio and like deciding what hospital we were going to go to is um, when I was 18 and the day I was preparing to move into my college dorm at Tulane, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans um, in the city, which incidentally is also my, uh, my home city, uh, was devastated. Um, and when New Orleans opened back up, there was an incredible shortage of, of medical professionals, uh, you know, just to, just to help people um, through, you know, medical emergencies in the case of EMTs, but even just ongoing health issues. And so I had the opportunity to um, take a training and it, it seemed like as an 18 year old, this was the best way I could help. And it all just sort of happened, <laughs> you know, to be honest. Uh, yeah, the city I loved really needed me, and so, so I did it. That That is a really great reason to step up. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of folks would do the same in that situation. So as I'm thinking of folks that might, uh, for example, be aspiring uh, themselves work in the same zone of excellence as you, uh, mm-hmm. if you were to give them advice on um, like bits of media that you consume, whether it's reading, listening, watching, that you kind of use to like keep up to date to keep your skills fresh. Uh, like what would you recommend to those folks? Yeah. You know, I thought about this question for a long time. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm extremely lucky to have people around me who um, are often sharing a lot of content that helps me understand how uh, the policy environment around us is changing when it comes to like what, different public programs are doing. Um, our partners uh, at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in particular have become a really huge source of education for me. So I recommend you know, checking out the things that they are, are publishing. Um, but to be totally honest, uh, I am more likely these days to recommend that folks in civic tech consume things that are not like news media. <laughs> um, it's a super hard time to do this work. and. I think it's so easy to feel like success is really far away in transforming a lot of government services. So I've actually been recommending a lot of poetry lately <laughs> to people. Um, in particular, uh, Mary Oliver, I don't you might be familiar already with her, a really wonderful American poet who just passed away this last month. Um, and she has this one called, called Wild Geese that I have been reading often, like, since I got the news. Uh, and there's this, like, really beautiful line in it where she's like, um, meanwhile, you know, meanwhile, the geese are, are heading home again, and it has all this beautiful imagery. Um, and I think for me, in the environment we're in right now in civic tech, being reminded that, like, the pressure's off, no matter how fraught the work is, uh, the geese are heading home. Everything is still gorgeous, and um, as long as we like keep pushing forward, we're you know adding, contributing a little more to a world where like everyone can just take a second and appreciate the geese heading home. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but that's the. I've noticed I've been pushing people more toward like appreciate the art. Remember that you know it's not always going to be so fraught to do this stuff. 
That is a really beautiful bit of poetry. I'll have to admit when I wrote the question, I wasn't expecting that, but uh, I think that answers better. Yeah, that, that's really nice. I, I think what I'll try to do also for the, for the listener is maybe hunt down a link and throw that in the description in case there are folks yeah. that want to read the whole, the whole poem as well. I can send it to you too. Oh, excellent, excellent. That, that'll make it easy on me. Yeah. All right, and then uh, I'm going to go ahead and shift our gears here uh, over okay. to kind of like our, our uh, main topic for the episode here, this uh, idea that um, the, the phrase I really gathered from from your online presence, this idea of like humane technology, I think like one of your taglines is like designing humane technology. And I would be curious to get your perspective uh, of what that phrase, you know, what, what does it mean to you? So when I think of that phrase, I think of, you know, technology that is is shaped in a way uh, to work for the people who who have to interact with this. Um, and, you know, in government, that can mean a lot of different people, uh, you know, for the kinds of programs I work on for something like food assistance, that means, uh, you know, a person who needs help buying food. And so they're applying, they're often caseworkers involved, there are folks whose whole job it is to report on that system. So they're also interacting with the technology. Um, but for me, the, the absolute the center of that, the person whose needs have to be elevated the most are um, whoever is the, the least power in that situation, whoever really needs the service. So uh, almost always for me, that's the, the person applying, you know, the resident. Um, and a, a really good example, I think, of like the application of this idea is um, our current work at NAVA on the safety net. Um, I work on a project that is called Integrated Benefits, which is uh, uh, an initiative partnership between uh, NAVA, Public Benefit Corporation, Code for America, and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, where we're working with a few different states to pilot really small uh, pieces of eligibility systems. You know, how might we build them in an agile way? How might we make them much more people-centered? Um, you know, and when you think about all those components, there's, there's a lot to consider from like, how flexible is this staff? How easy is it to administer? Um, but for my practice, uh, and the folks I work with, you know, the big question that makes it humane is, um, is what we're building dignified? Uh, is it going to provide an experience um, that uh, helps people get what they need? quickly that doesn't feel like a struggle which you know quite frankly is the historical precedent of a lot of these systems um you know can can we empower people at all to to recognize what choices they have even in a situation like this um i think those are all factors that go into whether a piece of technology is is humane or not something you've pointed out about not Nava, I think uh, both times you've referenced it is this uh, fact that it's a like a, a public benefit cor- corporation. Yeah. I would be curious to know, like, do you think that that structure like has an impact on your ability to effectively do the things you're describing there? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the most uh, sort of the most straightforward way it has an effect is. Um, the public benefit structure, like as a corporation, means we have to act in the public interest. Otherwise, uh, you know, the shareholders, who in this case are the employees of NAVA, um, could pursue legal action if we were to act in a way that was not um, in the public interest. Uh, so there's that. 
I think there's also, um, you know, the, like the partnership I mentioned, uh, partially philanthropically funded. I think that would be really difficult to do if we were, um, you know, maybe an LLC or something like that. Uh, so I think there's sort of all these little ways in addition to this very like clear legal structure <laughs> that makes it so that um, we can, uh, we can participate in, um, you know, these very, uh, these very targeted efforts to, um, yeah, increase the, the public benefit that comes out of the safety net programs. As you might be aware, uh, there have been misuses of technology in the past on things that impact the, the social and safety net. I think any listener of the program would probably not be a stranger to some of those horror stories. Uh, like one such, such example that I'm aware of would be the kind of like the debacle with that like very large IBM contract with the state of Indiana, I think was like the late 90s into the 2000s. I think it maybe it ended in the late 2000s. And it ended up being essentially something that wound up making it more difficult for folks to get access to things that they needed, that they had right to uh, Mm -hmm. for many reasons that I won't dive into right now. But I'd be curious to hear about um, how your approach to to building uh, systems for the safety net is different to where it like prevents kind of falling into similar pitfalls. Well, we think it works, right? (laughs) We're pretty sure. Um, I'm I'm almost joking. Uh, so there's a huge amount of evidence that you know monolithic technology projects like the one you mentioned uh, in Indiana um, that take years to deliver that are like tens of millions of dollars and there's more um, are are likely to be over budget or are really behind schedule or you know in some really broad cases uh, not launch at all. I think there's a study from the Standish Group, I believe, that um, puts the failure rate of projects that um, are that large at like 60%. Um, and the same study found that uh, when you when you sort of flip that model, when you have government projects whose labor costs are like under a million, under two million, something like that, um, we see like 60% success. And you see the, the failure rate go way down. Um, so there's just like the scale of project I think that um, we, like, as a community, are pretty sure that if we, if we scale it down, just it's just like a very clear way of reducing risk because you're literally putting less public money at risk. Um, but there are also a number of practices uh, that are, you know, becoming more and more widespread in the space um, that further reduce the risk associated with building software in in the government environment. We've got lots of factors maybe uh, working against you. Um, so agile development, you know, says that we should solve like the smallest problem that we possibly can, um, and, like put it in front of folks who are actually going to use it and, and get those feedback loops going really early and often. Um, you know, so in Vermont, the way this has worked out for us is uh, we are working with the state to um, introduce uh, a new way for folks to send in what are called verification documents. Um, So if you can imagine you are applying for food assistance and uh, you need to show that you have a certain amount of income, you might share your pay stubs, you know, to show the state how much money you're making right now. Um, Historically, uh, you would have to either mail that in, which can take a while, and if you need help buying food, you might need help right now. Um, Or you can bring it in person, you know, which 
costs money and gas and can be really inconvenient for folks um, who work. So we're allowing people to just upload their document electronically. Um, and, you know, it's a really relatively simple piece of technology. Uh, but one of the first things we tested out and put in front of Vermonters was just like a sketch of how this could work. Um, and, and, you know, Vermont, the Vermont, uh, like, um, the Vermont product owners and their product team uh, are doing that along with us. So they're seeing like, oh, you know, we can be getting feedback from folks as soon as we have an idea about how this could work. Um, and like slowly we've repeated that as, you know, it's gone like out into the world and people are actually sharing documents with the state through this channel now. Um, we're continuing to get that input. Um, so not only are we able to like move faster, work in a much smaller way that reduces risk. We're also getting a lot of feedback super early from the Vermonters, from state staff, people like that, the folks who can really uh, highlight for us, what are the risks in it be? Where might this project run into troubles? And in that way, you're able to like, if you do fail, fail at a much, much smaller scale than you know, maybe previous government projects had with enough time to, to correct yourself. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah, that, that, that definitely sounds like that's a, a positive direction. And in that, you mentioned this like idea of like, you know, if you're going to, to fail, you know, you know, fail, you know, fail fast and maybe fail small. But then that also yeah. implies like there's the opposite possibility of, you know, success, right? Yeah. Um, in, in this sort of project, like how do you go about trying to define success w within those, those, those boxes? <laughs> Collaboratively <laughs> with a lot of conversations. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on on what you're trying to do, right? So for us, in the example that I was just sharing, um, where we're providing a way for Vermonters to share documents, uh, one of the success metrics we're looking at is, uh, you know, one, does it work? Like, can people actually successfully get all the way through the little web application? that we have, um, you know, and that's something that we can learn really early just with a prototype. Um, but other metrics of success are like, well, how long does it take people to respond for, to that request for a pay stub or something like that? You know, can they respond in a day or, or does it take a week or do they not understand the request? Um, you know, uh, other things you might look at are, um, like, are, do the caseworkers actually get what they need when someone sends in that case says they need more information to be able to, to process that case and just get that person on through the system? Um, so it's really, you know, you really have to get into the weeds of how these programs work, um, what else is going on with the state that might, uh, you know, influence some of those metrics so we can really understand what we're looking at um, and, like, how does it compare to what came before? Uh, so it's really, it, I think, in most government projects, it has to be a really deeply collaborative effort between, you know, the state uh, program, um, the tech people, and, you know, whoever's building it so we can figure out, like, once we see this number move or once we see this signal, we will know that we're actually succeeding. And I, I think once we start to talk a bit about uh, things like metrics and, like, what success yeah. and failure looks like, it's kind of hard to decouple that from, well, ethics really, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would be curious to hear how you go about like evaluating concerns either for you individually about projects you work on as well as uh, maybe like teams that you lead. 
so I'm really lucky to work at Nava because they're that particular group of people uh, have aligned on a really explicit values for how we work together, what we're building, what we're trying to do, you know, and so that's something we can we can really return to if there is a particularly fraught situation. Um, I think a really good example of this is uh, early on in the integrated benefits work, um, work requirements for Medicaid started rolling out. Um, and for folks who aren't familiar, this is a requirement that says um, people who are receiving Medicaid, which is, uh, there are a lot of reasons you could be on Medicaid, but generally, um, like folks with low incomes who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford health coverage. Work requirements mean that you have to prove that you are either working a certain number of hours or that you're looking for a job. Um, and there's a lot wrapped up into that. Uh, but in practice, it means another sort of bureaucratic barrier in front of people being able to get health coverage. Um, we have seen that sort of the more uh, requirements you add to programs like that, the more likely people are to drop off. Um, so it's something we're pretty against, but uh, in the early days of the initiative, states were coming to us and saying, you know, this is a technology problem. We don't know how to track this stuff. We don't know how states are going to, or we don't know how people are going to uh, actually give us this information. Um, and so we had to decide if we were going to engage with states that were doing that. Um, and, you know, this is, there is a view of that that says, uh, you know, we work with what's in front of us. This is the reality. People are going to have to do this anyway. We could build technology that, like, just guides them through it and makes it as easy as possible. And then there's another view that says, um, well, this would be erecting an additional barrier in front of health coverage, uh, which I personally think is a, a human right. Um, and our, our company values are that we are, we are active stewards, um, that we acknowledge that uh, the work we do impacts millions of people and the stakes are, are super, super high. Um, and that we have to advocate then for uh, what is actually going to positively impact people's lives. And so um, we elected to not engage with states that were trying to implement work requirements. And I think um, the conversation would have been uh, would have been more difficult to navigate if we hadn't, you know, already all agreed that. Uh, we are we are active stewards. We are here to think very long term beyond election cycles. Um, and doing this would not be uh, inclusive. It would not be in the public interest. And so we will forego the opportunity to work with states who are interested in in building like work requirement software. That sounds like a really complicated conversation to have as, as an organization. And one that's going to be, you know, there's going to be fraught with, with really strong opinions on both sides of that. Could you talk about a little bit about like, how do you go about having that's that sort of discourse? Like, at least in your case, like, how did that flow happen? It was pretty open conversation. At the time, the team was pretty small. So when I think back, it's like just a few people, <laughs> you know, like in a room, all talking about it. Um you know, but when I say we have company values, like we literally have a document. There's like a sign on the wall behind me that says be active stewards. Like it's actually one of our values. Um, and we have like documented uh, 
what all of these things mean to us. So to be honest, it was it was a little fret in like communicating with our partners possibly about it, but uh, I don't think anyone was surprised that we didn't want to do it. You know, I think we we try to lead with our values anyway, and so internally, like it's pretty fast, <laughs> you know, that we weren't going to do that. So you've mentioned the phrase, uh, be an active steward uh, a couple of times in, in discussing yeah. these values. Uh, can we dig into that a little more? Like what, what does that mean to you? Uh, for me, so part of that is an acknowledgement that um, we are in the cr- incredible position of uh, like across NAVA, the work we do impacts like more than 60 million people huge number of people right and so we need to be very conscious that um, decisions we make here even if they seem small can have an incredibly outsized impact on people Um, and because of the nature of the programs we work on you know Medicare Medicaid uh, our origins at healthcare.gov you know the safety net broadly at the state level now um, the stakes are super high for people, these are things that people rely on to meet like absolute basic needs. Um, and so we have to hold ourselves to a very high standard. Uh, and that's something we've agreed on, you know, together as a group. Um, and in order to do that, and I think this is where the steward and the active part comes in, in order to meet those standards, uh, we have to, to listen really closely to the folks uh, we serve. So the folks who, who benefit from these programs, the folks who have to work on them. Um, and we need a nuanced understanding of their experiences and their needs. Uh, and then because we have that understanding, we have to advocate um, for those voices to, uh, like internally to ourselves, you know, saying, okay, my understanding of work requirements, you know, as a designer researcher is that it's actually really gonna harm people. It's gonna be a barrier any health coverage and then we have to advocate to our partners that this is gonna this is gonna result in people losing and losing health coverage um, and it's very serious and, and something we're not willing to engage in and then um, you know only by taking a lot of a lot of care and a lot of like a very humble approach to the whole thing um, can we actually build things that will that will last and like be truly helpful to people who need them uh, what I what I think I'm hearing there a little bit is is almost something that it kind of gets almost up to that border of of like having to be a policy advocate in a way, like e- even the message of hey, like we can't work on this because these outcomes will occur is is in a way a message to that end, whether that's yeah. the in, the intention or or not. Um, do you do you find yourselves in in that situation where you're kind of having to put on like policy advocate hat along the way? Hmm. Um, I think we have to, we often have to understand it. I think, uh, if you're going to work in this space, you should understand the policies and often how they're changing because it seems like they're changing all the time. Um, I've been super lucky in the integrated benefits work that we partner with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Um, so shout out to them. I feel like they've been my policy education, (laughs) like, source, um, for so long for this project. Uh, so we need to understand it. We're lucky we have partners to lean on who can sort of help write us and say, you know, okay, if these are your values, then like, 
you know, uh, this is the maybe the interpretation or the the impact you're trying to understand as a result of, of changing a policy or something like that. Um, so I would say there's less of like we are, you know, lobbying Congress people, you know, to change particular things. But um, I think the implementation of particular policies, uh, the things we need to understand in order to do this right is absolutely a huge part of the work. And for folks that uh, want to do well at designing public services, are there, say, um, tools in the tool belt, for lack of a better phrase, that you might suggest like, hey, like go out and learn about these things. It'll make you better at it. Yeah. You know, I used to just say like, oh, go talk to people, learn to talk to people, <laughs> you know, ask um, the the beneficiaries of the recipients of your service, you know, what their experiences, ask the people close to the front lines, um, you know, what's going on. But, uh, and that's still true. Increasingly, I'm seeing um, just how critical uh, buy-in from leadership is to like give public servants room to to even just go have those conversations or to to try things in a new way. Um, and so I think the tool belt is really like comfort with uh, having people work in a new way. And uh, for leaders, um, like just that little bit of bravery that it takes to say like, okay, it's okay if we fail, but let's just do it in a super small way. Um, and it's hard to do. It's, it's really hard to change uh, the way that things have worked for a really long time. Um, you know, but really close to my work in, in that integrated benefits work, we're seeing state leaders stepping up and saying, we understand that, um, you know, these technology systems that we use to uh, determine eligibility for, for Medicaid and, and SNAP, which is food assistance and, you know, all these other programs, that they have to be different. And so we have to be different. Um, and, you know, the state that I work in in Vermont, this is where we see state leaders really shining and giving that air cover to their product teams um, to go out and try something totally new. And that's like the, the sort of the precursor to any of those little successes is like uh, figure out how to carve out some of that room um, for people who are working under you so that they can go try out some of these things. Looking at the civic tech movement in a broader context, let's say you had a, a magic wand. And with that wand, you could change like any one thing or, or one trend within the civic tech movement. With that power, like what, what would you change? Yeah, I could change anything at all. Um, I think that as a community, we, we need to break out of the, the sort of legacy we've inherited from thinking that um, you could do like a tour of duty in civic tech and be done with it, you know, or that like one, one fellowship or one, you know, two year term of service, um, might be enough. And, uh, I think for some people it very well could be, but I think we also need to create space for this to be, um, a longer career for people. I think we're seeing that this work takes so much time, you know, to realize the, to realize the big successes. And right now, frankly, we're not set up well to either take junior people or to keep other people around, you know, once they've been here 
for a couple of years, um, I mentioned, you know, earlier that it's, it's a hard time to do this job. And uh, when I, when I look at the people who work around me, um, I'm incredibly lucky that they're, they're so talented and they're here, but I also see like the blank space of people who left the field because they were burnt out or because, you know, um, sometimes it can just be really hard. It can be truly like a toxic environment. Um, especially if you've inherited a lot of the problems that already existed in Silicon Valley. And so I think being, you know, really critical and not get caught up in like, oh yeah, civic tech, like we're always the good guys. Uh, like I think not giving ourselves a free pass and being super critical about whether we're inclusive, whether as a community we can sustain people staying here for an entire career. Um, those are really big questions that we have to answer. We have to change things if we want to keep all of the talent um, that, you know, we've been lucky enough to, to have in the field as it's been growing over the last few years. Um, I really recommend uh, an article uh, by Sabrina Hersi-Essa about this. Um, it, it addresses uh, many of the stuff specifically, like how civic tech uh, in the U.S. can be really toxic for, for people of color or women and, and why it's so urgent that we take accountability for changing those patterns. Um, I think if we don't proactively elevate uh, all kinds of people into into leadership in civic tech, uh, especially people who tech normally tech broadly normally dismisses. We're just going to recreate the problems that we see in, in Silicon Valley. Um, if you want to Google that article, it's called a uh, uh, civic tech me too and toxic ecosystems. And I, I highly recommend folks check it out if you want to know what should change in civic tech. Excellent. And uh, wor worry not, listener. Uh, I will go ahead and go <laughs> fetch a link and put it in the description so that you can cool. do one last Google. I, I will Google for you in this case. <laughs> cool. And uh, one of the things we like to do on Civic Tech Chat is leave some space here at the end so that um, folks like you, the, the guest, can mm -hmm. leave us with uh, kind of that last message. Like, what, what do you want to leave, have us leave this episode thinking about here at the end? So to that end, like what would those sort of concluding thoughts be for you? I've been thinking a lot about um, sort of the long tales that precede and follow our work in civic tech. Um, I had the opportunity recently to be a part of a few legislative presentations to the Vermont legislature about some of the things we've been doing with the state and it was one of the first times that I saw how clearly, um, how, but I saw really clearly all the decisions that get made before uh, a project can even be formed, you know, before the money like gets to an agency that decides they're gonna buy a new piece of technology um, and kind of everyone who, who weighs in on that. And then on the other side, you know, often when we as technologists show up to work on something in government. We are working with technology that's been around in some cases for decades. Um, and if we, if we go ahead and assume that the things we do now, whether we want them to or not, like are gonna have that, that super long tail into the future, um, then we really need to interrogate the impact of, of what we're designing, what we're building, and the choices we make right now, um, and then hold ourselves accountable 
for the outcomes that it produces. Uh, and I, I find myself thinking about this idea of uh, holding ourselves accountable for outcomes way into the future, you know, not only when it comes to tech, but when it comes to how we treat each other, when it comes to how we build the community and all of this stuff. Um, so I think that is what I would encourage folks to reflect on is that um, in this, in this environment, our, our choices stick around sometimes way into the next generation. So let's be really intentional about what we're trying to do. I think you've given us a, a great deal to think about here uh, as we come to a close. And uh, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to come on the program. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that you made, for one, made time for us, and two, we're willing to engage in you know, a topic it's, it's not always super easy to approach and, and to discuss. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope, yeah, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.